Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Can I tell you something? I really like making these podcasts. It never feels like a job. When I'm writing a book or a script, there comes a time where the fun is replaced by the slog. I begin to feel the deadline weighing on my soul, and I have to force myself to sit at the keyboard and finish what I started because the bills are due. But this podcast is different. And I think it's because I get to learn about something new every episode. I get to put on a new hat and try it out for half an hour or so. It could even be said that each episode has its own distinct personality. When I start thinking up a new season of The Philosophy of Crime, the first thing I do is figure out the subject of each episode and the order in which I want to present them. Ever since season one, back in 2018, I've had split personality disorder somewhere on that list. But eventually, I replaced it with something more topical. It's become a bit of a thriller movie trope, after all, the idea of a serial killer with different personalities living inside him. Something to be used as a defense when he gets caught. It wasn't me, Your Honor, it was Dennis, the other personality that lives inside me. He's the real killer. But does that ever happen in real life? Or is it just a pretend thing that clever killers invent so that they can go to the mental hospital instead of prison? I had heard that split personality disorder was removed from the DSM, that's that big book of psychological problems, because it wasn't real. So why waste an episode on something that's been debunked? I finally decided to do some cursory research before I ditched the idea altogether this year. I thought I'd do a little digging and find out it was just bad men playing pretend, and then I wouldn't have to do an episode about it at all. 
Instead, I learned that there are people among us who really do have different personalities living inside them. These personalities are referred to as alters, as in alternate personalities. Some who suffer from split personalities are killers. Some are not. Some of them may be living beside you right now, passing themselves off as a kindly neighbor, like a functioning alcoholic who keeps his drinking indoors. But what's been keeping me up at night is an article I found in Scientific America which suggests a terrifying possibility that I and you and everyone we've ever known may in fact be alters ourselves. Welcome back to the philosophy of crime. I'm your host, James Renner. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You've seen Split by now, haven't you? It was M. Night Shyamalan's big comeback movie, the secret sequel to Unbreakable. James McAvoy played the character of Kevin Wendell Crumb, a man with 24 different personalities living inside his head, and one of them was a serial killer. But did you know that Kevin Wendell Crumb was based on a real man named Billy Milligan? All this happened back in 1977 on the campus of The Ohio State University. I got a lot of the details from an article that appeared in The Dispatch, which you can find in the liner notes if you're interested. On October 14, 1977, a young optometry student was in the campus parking lot when a man approached her with a gun and escorted her to a wooded area. He raped her there, then robbed her. A second woman was raped nearby eight days later, then a third young woman four days after that. The police showed the victims mugshots of men from the area who'd been convicted of rape in the past and one of the women picked out the photograph of a man named Billy Milligan. Detectives compared a fingerprint found at the crime scene to Milligan's prints. It matched. An Ohio State University police investigator, Elliot Boxerbaum, was there for the arrest and rode with Milligan in a cruiser to the station. On the way, they talked, and so it was Boxerbaum who was the first to notice that something was very different about Milligan. 
I couldn't tell you what was going on, but it was like I was talking to different people at different times, Boxerbaum later told the dispatch. Milligan was evaluated by a psychiatrist prior to his trial. The shrink believed that Milligan suffered from multiple personality disorder. There were as many as 24 personalities living inside Milligan's body, 24 separate alters, each fighting for attention. According to the psychiatrist, a personality named Reagan had recently taken over Milligan's body. Reagan identified as Yugoslavian, and in fact, one of Milligan's victims had reported that her attacker had spoken in a European accent. Milligan had another personality called Adelana, who was a lesbian. It was Adelana, the doctor claimed, who had actually committed the rapes, not Milligan himself. She'd been in charge of the body at that moment. At first, Franklin County prosecutors were like, get the fuck out of here. But then they sat down with Milligan and, and they watched as he turned into different people. Each personality had a unique speech pattern and accent. Each sat differently in a chair. And eventually, the prosecutors, the defense attorney, and the judge all came to the same conclusion. Milligan's body had committed the rapes. But since he was not the dominant personality when they occurred, he should not be held responsible for them. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to Athens Mental Health Center. I wondered, how is a man like Milligan created? How does a consciousness divide into different individual beings? Turns out, M. Knight got that part right too. It seems that the thing that causes a mind to fracture into different personalities is child abuse. Lots and lots of child abuse. Billy Milligan's mother was a popular singer. His father was a comedian who had married uh, another woman. When Billy was four years old, his father died by suicide. And Milligan's mother then married a guy who had allegedly sodomized and tortured little Billy Milligan, going so far as to bury him alive at one point. By the time he reached middle school, Milligan's mind had fractured into separate, distinct personalities. He would go into strange trances and wander around town until someone brought him home. His mother had him committed, but the hospital kicked him out after three months. Then he was expelled from school. He joined the Navy, but got kicked out of there, too. He was still a teenager when women began to accuse Milligan of rape. He spent a lot of time in juvie. While Milligan was a patient at Athens Mental Health Center, a doctor, David Call, attempted to fuse Milligan's personalities back into one. But Dr. Call discovered that Milligan had already kind of done this. Milligan's personalities could sometimes merge into an entity they called the teacher, which helped each of them to understand their special talents. But the teacher had never controlled Milligan's body. Until then, the teacher had remained quietly inside. Any reasonable doctor might have decided it was best not to push any further. But Dr. Call really wanted to talk to the teacher, and so he devised a way to push Billy to finally confront the truth of his condition. One day, he recorded Reagan talking and, and then played that tape back for Billy. Billy could never remember being anyone else but Billy. This was the first time he had heard definitive proof of another personality speaking through his lips. That moment had a profound effect on Billy, and 
As Dr. Call had hoped, it drew the teacher to the surface. With the teacher now the dominant personality, Billy reported that he felt whole for the first time since he was a child. Billy's therapy was going so well that Dr. Call gave him permission to leave the hospital for unsupervised walkabouts. It didn't take long for reporters at the dispatch to learn of this and put it all in the paper. This set off a wave of public criticism. The publicity and shame caused the teacher to retreat, and Milligan's other personalities took over his body again. Soon, Milligan was getting into trouble once again, and he was transferred to Lima State Hospital for the criminally insane. And in 1986, he escaped. He was spotted in Washington State and was later arrested in Miami. Nobody really knows what he was up to while he made his way across the country. Milligan was sent back to the mental ward until 1991 when he was released into the world. He promptly disappeared again. He popped up in 2000 when he declared bankruptcy in San Diego, and then he died of cancer in 2014 at the age of 59, and as far as I know, there's only one name on his tombstone. There's also the case of the Zoo Man of Knoxville. In February 1992, a woman arrived at the police station claiming she'd been abducted and raped. The abduction part was a lie. She didn't want the police to know she was working as a prostitute at the time and that she'd gone willingly with the man to a location in the woods behind Cahaba Lane, where there were some dirty mattresses on the ground. But then her John had attacked and assaulted her. The cop took the woman back to the crime scene, and there they found her attacker in the process of assaulting another woman. The cop arrested him on the spot. The guy's name was Thomas Husky, but he didn't go to jail then because the women refused to testify, afraid that their occupation would become public knowledge. Later that year, the bodies of four other prostitutes were discovered near Cahaba Lane. When detectives questioned other women who worked the streets, they discovered that Husky was well-known in the area. They called him Zoo Man because he worked in the elephant barn at the zoo. Police searched Husky's home and found jewelry from his victims. They brought him in and he quickly confessed, but then the detectives watched as Husky's demeanor changed and an altar came forward, a personality named Kyle. Kyle said he was the one who actually did the murders as a way to hurt Tom, the dominant personality. Then Husky changed again and began speaking in an English accent. This altar was named Philip Dax, and his job was to protect Tom from Kyle. One personality was left-handed while the others were right-handed. A team of psychiatrists later learned that Husky's personalities had first appeared after he was abused as a kid. And so Husky was convicted of several counts of rape, but he was never convicted of murder. At trial, four jurors believed Husky was not guilty because... Kyle had been the dominant personality when the murders took place. A mistrial was declared, and the prosecutors declined to take it to trial again. Husky received 64 years in prison for the rapes. He's currently eligible for parole and may already be out by the time you listen to this episode. Have a good night's sleep. Still, these criminals, they could be lying, right? I mean, maybe Billy Milligan and Tom Husky were just really good actors, able to fool jurors and judges. I used to think so, too. 
But then I heard about this woman in Germany. They call her BT because she's still alive and she'd like to remain anonymous. BT was in a car accident in her 20s, a really bad one. In fact, she was blinded in the accident. Years later, BT sought psychiatric treatment for multiple personality disorder, now called dissociative identity disorder. There's not a lot known about what caused her personality to split, whether it was the accident itself or whether it was childhood abuse. But by the time she got to the shrink, there were ten different alters living inside her body. One was a teenage boy, and the boy could see. The doctors, of course, were incredulous. No way. She must be faking the blindness. So they hooked her up to an EEG machine and watched as her alters stepped forward. Whenever the teenage boy was in charge, the regions of her brain in charge of vision were active. When BT was in charge, those regions were silent. She really was blind, but her alter could see. Can we take a moment to appreciate how fucking bonkers this is? If multiple personality disorder is a thing, then it means that there are people among us who are walking meat suits with 20 different personalities hiding inside, taking turns driving the body, like a circus car full of clowns. And because this condition usually comes with serious trauma and abuse, many of them also harbor violent tendencies. And what about this? If it's weird that there can be 20 different personalities living in a body, is it any less weird that even one exists? That there's some magic invisible thing driving your meat suit? What does it take for a single consciousness to form in the first place? In an attempt to answer that, I must introduce you to a philosopher named David Chalmers and the hard problem of consciousness. Whatever picture you have in your mind to represent a typical philosopher, David Chalmers is not it. He dresses like a stand-up comic and never takes himself too seriously. He's like the Mitch Hedberg of philosophy. Chalmers grew up in Adelaide, Australia, and he realized early on that his mind was different from the minds of other kids. He experienced forms of synesthesia. He sometimes saw sound as colors. For instance, the song Here, There, and Everywhere by the Beatles sounded bright red to him. Later, he studied math at Oxford University. During his studies, he came across the book Godel Escher Bach by Douglas Hofstadter, and it inspired him to become a philosopher so that he could study the weirdness of consciousness. For more on Hofstadter, listen to episode 305, How to Interview a Witness After They're Dead, in which I discuss Hofstadter's theory on consciousness as strange recursive loops. Fun fact, Hofstadter actually served as Chalmers' doctoral advisor. Chalmers became obsessed with the disconnect between our physical world and our mental subjective experience. Why is experience subjective? Why does a rose smell pleasant to me? If we bump into something, why don't we just simply chart that experience and alter our behavior to avoid it? Why does it also have to hurt? If we are merely a product of this universe, why don't we interact with it more like, more like a cog in a great machine? What is the purpose of feeling? We can hook someone up to an EEG machine and watch how their brains light up, which tell us what their brain is doing, but you can't look at that data and know how that person feels about it all. 
This, he said, was the hard problem of consciousness. Why is there subjective experience at all? Why doesn't everything go on in the dark, with no consciousness being a part of it? What's the point? One possible solution is the philosophical idea of panpsychism, the belief that consciousness resides in all things, in the rocks and trees and animals, and that consciousness is an emergent property of this, that the right amount and a specific ordering of these tiny pieces of natural consciousness could give rise to a subjective, personal mind. A grain of sand is not a beach, but if you get enough grains together, it becomes one all on its own. Panpsychism treats the mind and consciousness as a fundamental aspect of the universe, something like space and time. This is not a new idea, either. Thales of Miletus, the first Greek philosopher, was telling people 2,500 years ago that everything was, quote, full of gods. Plato believed that the universe was one giant living being. And the hippie philosopher Alan Watts, he never stopped talking about how we're all just an extension of the universe, that it's using to learn about itself. That we are all it, man. This idea is an accepted part of many religions around the world, not just Buddhism, but the ancient religions of Native Americans. Remember that song from Pocahontas? She knew that every rock and tree and creature has a life, a spirit, has a name. And all of this leads back to that article in Scientific American that blew my mind, the title of which is, Could Multiple Personality Disorder Explain Life, the Universe, and Everything? The authors discuss panpsychism and Chalmers' hard problem of consciousness. The universe is consciousness, and we are each individual consciousnesses that are a part of it. But more than that, what we understand as our unique personality is itself made up of the collective consciousness of the molecules and atoms that make up our body and our brain. It's turtles all the way down. And a new theory emerges. What if consciousness is not divisible like matter? What if it's not in the subatomic particles of matter, pieces that need to be combined in order to make a, a personality? What if consciousness is like space-time, part of the very fabric of reality itself? But if that's true, why do we feel separate from everyone else? Why do we feel as though we have subjective, unique experiences? Why do we feel like an individual? Well, what if the mind that is the universe has fractured like the mind of an abused child? What if each of us is really just an alter? What if we're all a split personality living inside God's head? We may all be alters, dissociative personalities of universal consciousness, they wrote in their paper. This, of course, leads to the question of why this universal consciousness would have splintered into different personalities. We know how it happens in humans, trauma and abuse, but what kind of abuse could have driven God insane? Perhaps it's not so much the abuse that breaks a mind. Perhaps it's simply the desire, the will to protect itself. A child getting hit can develop a different personality to step in and protect the main personality from the trauma of the abuse. Maybe it's wanting to protect something invaluable that causes a mind to fracture and create a new consciousness. If that's the case, what is it that the universe is trying to protect itself from? 
maybe it's best we never know. A couple years ago, I wrote about a series of sexual assaults allegedly conducted by a lobbyist in D.C. I spoke to this man's co-workers and a handful of them sincerely believed that this man had multiple personalities living inside him. A different personality came forward every time he was in a room, alone, with women, they said. The way he spoke changed. His eyes even seemed to change color. They used different names for each personality and warned others when he was acting strangely. This man was eventually indicted for sex assault and is currently awaiting trial. No mention of multiple personalities has been made by his attorney, and it doesn't appear that he will use insanity as a defense. But I believe these women, especially after reading about Billy Milligan and the zoo man. I've mentioned this before, but one of the creepiest things I've ever heard is what the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, said when he was arrested after committing 50 rapes and at least 13 murders. I pushed him out, he said. D'Angelo thought another being was living inside his body, a personality named Jerry, who is the one who really did the raping and killing. A disturbing thought, but if it's true, if D'Angelo was not in charge of his body when Jerry took over and he had no control over the process, then how can D'Angelo himself be guilty? It's not something we dare think about too much. We crave justice for all those victims, and someone has to face the consequences. At the very least, D'Angelo was aware of Jerry, to some extent, and he should have gotten help before he did anything terrible. And it's entirely possible he was lying anyway. If that helps you sleep better at night, so be it. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com, where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project, which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that will give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Talking Pints, a clever way to mix up a fresh conversation. Available now at Uncommon Goods. Until next time, remember, there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everybody took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.